The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. stand in awe of all that you've revealed yourself to be. Father, we know that there is infinitely more above and beyond even that. But Father, what we see of your power and your nature and all that you've created and all that's around us and all that's in us, God, we... uh, We freely confess that there's there's none like you. And Father, we're amazed by your works, the way that you have worked in each of our lives individually. Father, we could we could share stories all night about the ways that you have worked and moved and orchestrated things we would have we have never dreamed up in a million years. And then as a, as a corporate body, the way you're working in us, God, we honor you. And God, we, we thank you. We thank you for those ordinary kindnesses that you extend to us. We thank you for your patience with us. Father, the reality is that we stand in a, in a place like this and we tackle a, a conversation like this. And there's no way that there's not just mountains of error. There's no way that we can consider the incarnation and what it means for your son to have become man and not not to miss. But you don't strike us down. You don't destroy us. You're so very patient in your correction and in your molding and your shaping. And so we, we thank you for the delicate way that you treat us, not just in that, but in every other area of sin and weakness and failure in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would give us a similar heart towards one another, that we would be delicate and and careful with each other, that we would be quick to extend mercy and forgiveness to each other, that we would assume the best motives for each other. God, would you just help us to have a have a heart like yours, not just towards those in this place, but towards the world around us, recognizing that they're slaves to fear. They're slaves specifically, as this text says here, to fear of death. So help us to be, help me to be far more compassionate than is my nature, to have a, have a tenderness towards them and a patience with them and a heart that rather than frustration and rather than anger seeks what is best for them in all in all ways and that of course is you so God we we trust that you are doing this work we ask you to continue to do it and we know Father that you do it in large part as we come to your word so as we return to this passage again this evening and we consider Jesus. God, help us to do more than just consider him in our minds, but to really treasure him in our hearts and to grow in our love for him and for one another. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you can go ahead and return to Hebrews chapter 2 this evening. And there was a, um, I referenced a book to you, I think it was last week, I referenced a, a book by Anselm of Canterbury, it's, it's called Why God Became Man. And there's a, the way the book came about was Anselm didn't really want to write this book. He, he was kind of working on a draft and he was jotting down some thoughts and somebody got a hold of it and ran out and started sharing it and he said, well, I've, I've got to finish the thing now. 
And the way I've told you, the way that the book works is there's a back and forth between him and a kind of a made-up opponent, a friendly opponent. It's not, it's not hostile, but it, you know, it gives you opportunity. Monologues are, are a difficult thing. They don't really allow the same level of exploration and explanation as, as a conversation does. And so he creates an imaginary guy that he's going to talk to on the other side of this. But one of the things that struck me was this, in, in this imaginary conversation, the guy's saying, you know, I, I want to know your thoughts on this. I want to know your thoughts on why, why God became man. And his first response, Anselm's first response to this guy is basically, but I know I'm going to mess up. And I tremble at the thought. I know that my, that my finite mind can't possibly fully understand the things that I'm talking about. And I know if I can talk in, in contemporary language, it's above my pay grade. It, it's outside my realm. It is higher and greater. And, and, I, and I tremble almost like the Jews in the Old Testament were afraid to say the name of God. They didn't want to blaspheme. and They didn't want to misrepresent him. And so... As, as we wrestle with this stuff, trying to stick as closely to the, to the biblical text as possible, there is still this sense of, sense of, of trembling because you're, you're talking about an incredible mystery. You're talking about something that after still 2,000 years, men, men wrestle and, and find areas of, of disagreement for. And so I very much feel that. And I... And I hope that you sense some of that as well in your own in your own studies that you have a desire to to honor God and to speak rightly about his son not, not that you're going to lose your salvation not that you're gonna not that he's going to strike you dead but just this the sense of the weight of, of what you're doing wanting to honor the one that has has redeemed you and so by now you've turned to Hebrews 2 let me go ahead and reread the text that we covered this morning go ahead and stand your feet please Hebrews chapter 2, I begin in verse 5 down through chapter 3, verse 1. This is the holy and errant word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. So as I, as I referenced several times this morning, this chapter begins with the author, who is obviously God, through a human author, warning the people against drifting away. Verse one, therefore we must, therefore we must play, pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, 
and every transgression or disobedience justified, excuse me, received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And that really, I didn't, that wasn't the focus of this morning's, this morning's sermon, but it, it really did strike me as we just kind of glanced over the top, the dangers of drifting. And that really is, for so many, what we're dealing with. For so many that fall away, they don't wake up one morning and just say, well, today's the day I deny the faith. Today's the day I make a shipwreck of my, of my walk. It's a, it's a drift. It's a slow and steady slide, almost imperceptible at times. I, I, I've used the, the picture that I think I see in Ephesians chapter 4 of us growing up together as one body into full maturity so that we, we're not drifting away, we're not being blown about, we're not susceptible to the, to the wind and the waves. And I, and I think about a child out in the surf and what happens? They don't pay attention, they're out there alone, they're playing, enjoying the scenery, they look up and they can't find the canopy anymore. They've just drifted, they've just been taken away. And it really does strike me as remarkable how much of the Christian life is full-throated, full-souled, all-of-life effort. There's, there's never just a coasting. There's never just, okay, I'm on this conveyor belt and off we go. Now, there's never a doubt as to where, we, where we're headed. It's, it's all accomplished in the work of Christ. It's all assured and the coming of the Spirit and the guarantee, that down payment that we received, but it's never, it's never a coasting. Coasting is always away, never towards. And so he begins with this. And you recall from this morning, he, he talks about what God is doing and what God has promised in this great salvation. And it's Christ Jesus, the one whom the angels worship, the one before whom they bow down. He's made himself a little lower excuse me, lower for a little while than the angels, that he might taste death, that he might through his suffering find himself complete, fulfilling everything that man was meant to be, everything the first Adam failed to be, the, the second Adam he would be, not only as our ultimate representative, but as our great high priest. And we didn't really get to camp out on those Old Testament texts there, but I would commend them to your study this week as you, you look through what, what does it mean when he talks about the sanctifier and those whom he sanctifies having one source and how, how this ties to him not being ashamed therefore to call us brother. Or, or maybe you might look at what he talks about leading us as his brothers into the midst of the congregation. Christ Jesus leading his brothers and his children in worship before the Father. What does it mean for the Son of God to come and take upon himself flesh and, and walk in trust and faith towards the Father. And, and so we, as we wrestle with all that and we think about all that God has done to bring us to glory and we see in that picture this morning, we focus obviously with good reason, we focus much on the Son, but we do see a Trinitarian work that's happening here. The, the Father wants those whom he's leading into glory. It wasn't that the Son went out and found some strays and then brought them to the Father and said, can I keep them, can I keep them, can I keep them? No, the Father sent the Son. It was the Father bringing these sons to glory. And we realize, I pray that you're struck as I am by this picture of the trailblazer, the, the, the one that makes the way coming and, and taking us and, and leading us, taking us with him into this right hand of the Father in heavenly places. And, and I didn't really get to focus on it, or I, I just failed to focus on it as much this morning as I might would have liked to, but the idea that it's not just okay in some spiritual sense, we are seated with him there in the heavenly places today while we walk through this life of suffering. That's the promise that when the day comes, that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking just about the here and now, he's talking about the earth to come, the age to come the new heavens and the new earth, a very physical and tangible reality that we will enjoy with him when all this is burned up with fire and we sit judging even angels with Christ Jesus. And so 
It's on the heels of all of that. Christ Jesus is the trailblazer. Christ Jesus is the one who makes the way. Christ Jesus is the one who has condescended to take humanity with him back up to heaven to be all that God had called man to be. All that Adam and David and every other man had failed to be that we then come to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He calls them the children here, and surely this ties to what just came before this in verse 13. He talks about, behold, I and the children that God has given me, so that we're not just brothers with Christ, we're his, his children, very similar relationship there. And, and that really is a recurring theme all throughout the Bible. The reality is that God has a people, God has specific and certain people whom he has given to the Son. That's what John 10 is all about, those sheep who belong to the Father. He knows his sheep, Christ Jesus, the great shepherd, the one who has come. He knows his sheep and they hear his voice and they follow him. It's that, it's that ownership. It's that relationship that God has with those who are his and he, he hands them over to the son. And he says that these children that we share in flesh and blood, there's, there's, a, there's a common human experience. There's something common to all of us, and he calls it here sharing in the flesh and blood. And in short, this is everything that makes us human. I, I take great care whenever we talk about the incarnation to make clear that when we talk about what Christ took upon himself, we don't leave it just in a body. I think at maybe earlier stages in my Christian life, I had this idea of Jesus taking upon himself flesh, and all I thought about was meat and hair and, and teeth and eyes, I didn't even consider the soul of a man. So he's talking about what we share, what it, what it means to be human, and, and in essence, it's everything that needed to be redeemed. What fell whenever Adam sinned against God, it wasn't just that death and sickness showed up. It wasn't just that he looked down and recognized his nakedness for the first time. Everything. His mind, his will, his emotions, see Cain killing Abel. That comes from the overflow of the heart. And so we, we don't see just man's body needing resurrection. We don't just see the need for a new body. We see the need for a new everything. All those things that we read in 1 Corinthians 15, the flesh and blood, that cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, now wait a minute. I thought you just said that there's a very tangible reality in the world to come. I thought there's a new heavens and there's a new earth in the kingdom of come and in the kingdom to come and that we're going to be resurrected and have a body like Jesus. Doesn't Jesus still have flesh and blood? Yes, he does. Matter of fact, I think that's what God's going to have us study together on Christmas Eve. The fact that the one who sits at the right hand of the Father still sits there in the flesh. But he's talking about that flesh and blood which fell in Adam. Everything that became distorted and disoriented. And, and, and I know that you feel it. Because here's the reality of the Christian life for most of us. The longer you walk, the more internalized your sins become. I got pretty good at not hitting people when I was like four. And, 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 and frankly, as I, as I got a little bit older and I realized the consequences of telling lies or saying ugly words or I, 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 nobody masters his tongue. James makes that clear, but I got a little bit better. But I'm trapped with my thoughts. And I'm taunted and tormented by my desires. And sometimes I feel like I'm on a runaway freight train with my emotions. I need someone to redeem me, not just in this body that's getting older by the day. That's frankly the least of my problems. It's the way everything else in me responds to this. And so he's talking about everything that makes man, man. And he's saying he, that's our redeemer, that's Jesus. So he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's why we see him coming as a, as a helpless baby. I, I never get tired. I, I never find that I've lost my amazement at the reality that Mary held in her arms the one who created her. That if, that if she didn't nurse him and she didn't care for him and she didn't protect him, this child would die. And, and so we, we, 
We see the creator of the universe in the, in the arms of his mother. And then we see him growing as a young boy. I never cease to be amazed at the reality that he had to be taught arithmetic and language and the Torah. And he had to be a man who grew weary and, and tired. That bled whenever he was cut. He, he was like us, as our brother, like us in every single way and walking through the fullness of the human experience. Why didn't Jesus just die as, as a baby? If all that had to happen was the perfect man had to come, even the perfect man who was fully God had to come, take upon himself flesh and die, then why didn't Herod get hold of him? What was the point in this 33 year experience of humiliation and suffering and rejection? because he needed to fulfill all righteousness. He needed to succeed at every single place where man fell. And so therefore he walked through the fullness of the human experience, not just toddlerhood, not just adolescence, but growing all the way to be a man. And so one of the challenges, I guess, for some of us this Advent season is, is, is you're considering who Christ is, as you're considering what it means for him to take upon himself flesh. If there's not room in your Christology for a Christ who can grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with man and God, then you've missed. And we don't know how, and we're never gonna fully make sense of it, but we've gotta have room for a Christ like this, who when he said he didn't know something in his humanity sincerely meant, I don't know it, I'm not a liar. And it was one of the Gregories. Any of you that have ever studied church history, you know that you've got about a one in three chance. If somebody asks you who did something, say one of the Gregories. There was lots of Gregories and they did lots of stuff and they said lots of important stuff. I don't even remember which Gregory said it, but one of the Gregories essentially said, everything that Christ did not assume, he, he didn't redeem. If you don't have a Christ that assumed, that took upon himself, if you have a Christ that's just in the flesh, then that's all that got redeemed. You have hope of a new body in the resurrection, but again, you're still stuck with that same crummy mind and the same messed up desires and the same runaway emotions. So when he says that he himself partook of these same things, he means all of it. And then we get to our first purpose statement. It says that, or, or so that, that through death, God can die. God has a life that is indestructible. That's what Hebrews 7, 16 says. He has a life that is indestructible, and yet Christ Jesus was able to die. He had a physical body that could die, and he had a, a human soul that could drink down his father's wrath. And so he came and took upon himself a body that he could, he could die. And we might just camp out there for a little bit and consider all that this means. Again, because God can't come and die, not only because he has an indestructible life, because if God dies, everything ceases to exist. We sometimes have this thought in our minds that, that we're a, uh, what's that stupid game, the old football game where you crank up the thing and you just let the guys just, like that's what we're dealing with. They're the whole clockmaker fallacy. That God set a bunch of rules and he set a bunch of laws in motion and then threw his hands up and said, I'll see you at the end. Forgetting that at every moment, it's he that sustains us. It's he that holds us together. If God dies, there is no earth. There is no universe. There, there is nothing. We all find our life in him. So he had to take upon himself flesh and become like a man so that he could die. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Now, that's a strange phrase at first, the idea that the devil has the power of death because you people know that God has already ordained the days of your life. And, and you know beyond this that no one can shorten those days just as your anxiety can extend your life by one single second. That's a healthy lesson for many of us. But just as your anxiety can't extend the days of your life by one minute, nor can you shorten the days of your life, not you and not the devil. You remember the encounter that God had with Job as the sons of God were coming and going and 
in that second chapter, Job has already afflicted his family. And now he's going to go after, excuse me, the devil has already afflicted Job's family. Now he's going to go after his, his health. And he, the scripture reads, Job 2, 6, that the Lord said to Satan, behold, he, that is Job, is in your hand. Only spare his life. Satan can go no further than God allows. He can't take the life of anyone. But at the same time, we read in scripture from Jesus' own lips that he was not only a liar, but he's a murderer. And, and, and we hear the Lord Jesus warning us of persecution and tribulation, much of it at the hands of Satan. Revelation 2.10 says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So it's, it's very true to say that the devil is a murderer. He's a, he's a killer. Every murder, every death, every slaughter that we have seen in the history of the world, surely above and beyond and behind that is the working of the devil and the temptation of the devil. And, and we know beyond this that it was the devil who was there to tempt Adam. And what is the wage of sin other than death? It was through his temptation of Eve and then Adam joining in and the fall of man. That's where death entered into the world. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Had Satan not been there to tempt the woman, had Adam and Eve not followed the temptation of the devil, death would have never been a thing. That was not in God's original design. Man was not created to die. He was created capable of dying. And he chose death. In his rebellion, but it was through that temptation and through the sin. And so we see Satan in a very real way is, is one who, what does the scripture say? He has the power of death. And yet we know even as he cannot take the life of anyone, he can't touch one hair, can't singe a, a hair on your head without the will of God being behind him. Neither can he tempt you beyond what God would allow. So we should find great comfort in this. We don't come to this and all of a sudden find ourselves terrorized that, that there's a devil waiting around every corner either to tempt us to something that might lead to death or to strike down our own life. We know that it's the sovereign God of the universe who holds our life in his hand, both our physical life and our spiritual life in his hand. But in a very real sense, he's the one who has the power of death. So it says that therefore Jesus took on flesh so that he could destroy the devil. We're, we're right back to the garden. Are you, are you tired of me referring to the garden of Eden? Are you tired of Genesis 3.15? Are you tired of being reminded that right there in the very beginning as man sinned against God, he was there so graciously making this curse upon the serpent, which is a promise to us, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent? And, and then as John in his first letter reminds us, that was the purpose in Jesus coming. The son of God, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to stomp the head of the serpent. Now, if I was writing the story, if I was writing, I'm not a very good writer, I'm not very creative, but if I were, I could think of a lot of ways that I might want my champion and my forerunner and my, and my savior to come and stomp the head of the serpent and destroy the works of the devil. But what we read here in the book of Hebrews is, is that he did it through death. It was through death that he struck his, and, and again, go back to the garden, that he would, he would bruise his heel as he bruised the serpent's head. This is, this is the picture. It was through death, and Satan knew this. Satan was there. He is the serpent, so Satan was there, and he knew what God had said. He knew that it was through the death that he would be destroyed, and so that's why you see, what, what did Jesus say to Peter as he, he tells his friends, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to be handed over, to be accused, to be convicted, to die. And Peter says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. And don't you recognize how that was so much of what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do in the wilderness? Just bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. At very least, part of what he was saying is, why go through the suffering? I'll just give it all to you now. Because he, he knew. So he says that Jesus would destroy the devil, and he says that he would do it through death. Now, those of you, I think we got one of our men's Bible studies is working through Hebrews right now. Did y'all just work through it, Carrie, or no? Uh, about a year ago. 
you probably, if I'm not mistaken, the, the way in which the death of Jesus is spoken about throughout the book of Hebrews is most often um, as a sacrifice. He's most often spoken of as, as the one whose, whose life is given. But, but here in this text, he's saying that he is laying down his life to destroy the works of the devil. And I think that we do well at times to pause and realize what we're witnessing here is not just some sentimental, I keep calling it a Hallmark card, right? So many people have this picture of the cross of Jesus Christ and they make it into just this, this emotive, this, this sentimental gesture from God to mankind. Not recognizing that what we're seeing here is the seed of the woman winning. The promises of God coming to fruition. That this is spiritual war. This is the death blow to this great enemy of man. And so the, the question though is, how? How does the, again, if I'm writing the story, I can think of a lot of ways. Why didn't he just come take him and throw him into the fires of hell forever? Why didn't he just, with a word, utterly destroy the devil and every one of his, every one of his demons? Why death? What, what does death have to do with any of it? Well, well certainly, in part, we see something of Jesus' victory and his, his destroying of the works of the devil in the resurrection. If he's the one that is destined for the death of man, if he is the one that tempts man to take the life of others, and if he is the one who tempts man to sin, which leads to death, then surely the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a show of his defeat. We see in Acts 2.24, Peter saying that God has raised him up. That's Christ. That God has raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so there's this picture of Christ Jesus going into the jaws of death, coming out the other side victorious. And as we said this morning, not just for his own sake, but as the first fruits, as, as one that carries us with him. And so certainly in the resurrection, there is some picture as Jesus tastes death for us and comes out victorious with us. There's certainly a way in which he has defeated the devil, but we don't have any talk of the resurrection here. Again, those of you who have studied the whole book more recently than I, I don't think there's hardly any talk of the resurrection, maybe at the very, very end. It's, it's talk about the sacrifice and the giving of his life. So how then? I don't, I don't think we're there yet then. How then does he destroy the devil, the one who has the power of death? Well, verse 15, I think, carries us a little further. It says that not only has he destroyed the one through his death, but it says that he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So now we're saying that this destroying of the devil works parallel side by side with his delivering of all those who fear death. And one of those, one of those truths that I've tried to draw your mind to on Wednesday night, very often as we read through the Psalms, particularly the imprecatory Psalms, is that in God's saving of his people, there's always this picture of the destruction of his enemies. The destruction of the enemy is the way in which he works his salvation of those who have been ensnared to him. If you go back to the garden and you think about what that fall was, it wasn't just man rebelling against God, although it was, it was him siding with the devil. Man didn't start the rebellion, you realize this. The angels in heaven had already rebelled. That's why they had been thrown down. That's why the devil was the devil. We simply joined them in that rebellion. And so there is this picture in which him coming to set us free includes the destroying of the leading rebel, the one who has ensnared us. And he's saying here that these people, what they need freeing from is their fear of death. It's, he says it's a lifelong slavery because of this fear of death. And you know that man is terrified of death. The, the pain and the loss. And, and I don't just mean dying. Look, I, I don't fear death the way that the non-believer should. And we'll get to why that is here in a minute. But I do fear dying. I mean, at least some forms of dying I, I fear. Who was it that said, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there? This, this idea of going through the pain of death is one thing, but what you see in the world around you is they are terrified of the thought of death. 
And so, and so they, they do everything possible to not think about it. And the world is all too happy to help. And the fact that nobody dies at home anymore, it's, it's all so sterile and separate and over there. And so rarely are you there holding the hands of the ones that you love as they breathe their last breath, as they cross over into the presence of, of God. And, and so because of this, the world is, they're so fearful of death, they're, they're trying to act as though it's not coming. And, and you see this in any manner of 50-year-old men that try to pretend like they're 20-year-old men. Men, don't do that. It's not cute. But it's this, I don't want to, I don't want to grow old. I don't want to face death. And part of it's because we know that in death, there's the loss of everything that we count dear. When this world is all that you have, then of course you fear death. Because what is death? It's the loss of everything. Your health, your family, your job, your wealth, your belongings, your enjoyment of your reputation. Everything that you spent your whole life chasing after and idolizing and worshiping at the altar of. All of that goes in the end. All of that's lost in death. But more than that, there's a deep-seated fear of what comes after the death. If, if Paul is right in what he says in Romans 1, then we are surrounded by people who are constantly suppressing what they know to be true about God. They, are, they, they may have gotten so good at that suppression, they don't know they're suppressing it anymore. But like a people in the water trying to hold a beach ball down under the pool, they're spinning their whole lives trying to deny the fact that there is a God. And the reason is not just that they don't want to have to obey that God today. It's that they don't want to have to face him tomorrow. The idea that if there is a God, surely he hates me. And if there is a God, someday I'm going to stand before him as judge. And so they do everything possible to not think about, to not deal with the reality of, to not give any real concern to death. So it keeps them, he says, in subjection to lifelong slavery. Because of this fear, men do all kind of things that they wouldn't otherwise do. They, they find themselves cheating and stealing and lying and orchestrating their whole life. Why do you think that we as a church have said that we will do almost any funeral that comes our way? Almost anybody that calls me and says, we need you to do a funeral. I don't need to know if they're believers. I don't need to know if they're members of this church or any other church. Just about any funeral we have opportunity to, to preach, we're going to do because at least for one second in those people's lives, we're going to get them in these seats and give them opportunity to hear the truth about death and judgment. But here's what I can tell you as a man that has stood here and preached. I don't know by now, maybe, I don't want to guess. I'm guessing 30 funerals, something like this. People do everything they can in those seats not to hear the words coming out of my mouth. And I tell you, I do short funerals, don't I, Leanne Count? Eight minutes? That's maybe about the message. I keep it short, I keep it concise, and they do everything possible not to hear or deal with what's being said. They're in slavery, lifelong slavery, because of fear of death. They tell themselves fairy tales, they whisper to themselves lies, to have to... To, to avoid having to reckon with this. And it says that they're in slavery to the devil because he comes and he manipulates you and he, and he moves you and he changes you. And this gets back to the war that we're seeing here. The way in which Jesus taking upon himself flesh so that he can die is a conquering of the devil is because death in and of itself is a, is a tool in the hands of the devil. We're not always aware of the tricks of the trade and the ways in which he moves and manipulates, but if what death is, is the loss of everything, then, then every time he can come along and tempt us to avoid suffering, to avoid loss, to avoid anything that feels like death, he wins. He moves us to sin. He keeps us in slavery. Again, I say convincing you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And I want you to think about what then is Satan's ultimate weapon? What, what can he actually do to you? Of course, understanding that God is sovereign even over the devil, what can he actually do to you? Maybe he can kill you, of course. God might turn him loose to take your life or to work in somebody else to take your life. What's his only real weapon that can get you, that can hurt you? Isn't it your own sin? 
Isn't it sin that's gone unconfessed and undealt with? If he can tempt you to sin, if he can cause you to die in that sin, then you stand before God as a condemned man. And isn't that what Satan is, is he's an accuser? He's the one that stands there and points and says, condemn this man. I hate this man because he bears your image and I want you to destroy him. He's the accuser. And isn't that just like a snake? He tempts you to do something and then turns around and tattles on you for doing it. He tempts you to follow him in rebellion and then he stands in accusation against you. And so that's the picture. I think we're getting there. The one who has the power over death, the one who has introduced death through his temptation to sin, the one that keeps us ensnared and afraid and, and, and locked in because of the fear of that death, that Christ Jesus has overcome him through his death. We're still not there yet, though. How? Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So what does a high priest do? A high priest goes and he makes an offering on behalf of his people. I told you that's the way that Hebrews seems to talk most regularly about the death of Jesus Christ is as an offering. And so we've got this picture here of Christ Jesus. He's the high priest. He's making the offering to propitiate the wrath of God. But we know that Jesus isn't just the high priest making the offering. He's the lamb of God that's been offered. Hebrews 9.26 says, but as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. It's the giving of his own life. And we know that only man can stand in the place of man. That's why the blood of bulls and goats would never do. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away the sins of man. And so we had to have man, but not just any man, perfect man, acceptable man, man whom God would receive as payment for all that we owe him. And, and, and the focus here in Hebrews is one that can make people uncomfortable because he's not just talking about cleansing for sin, cleansing of sin or removing the guilt of sin like an expiation. He's talking about propitiation. That means the appeasing of the wrath of God, indicating God was angry. Scripture says it, that God is angry with sinners every day. And that's a teaching that's fallen out of favor with man, the, the wrath of God needing to be appeased or to be satisfied. But, but we know that the wrath of God is not this out of control, capricious thing. We know that it's his settled indignation. It's what happens. You can't have anything else happen when a holy, holy, holy God stands across from sinful, sinful, sinful man. There can be no other result other than his wrath to come. And so we see now how Christ Jesus came and he took upon himself flesh, becoming like his brothers in every way and yet perfect and sinless so that he could then offer himself to his father to appease that wrath, to satisfy it. When Jesus talks about the cup passing from him, when Jesus talks about it being finished, this is what he means. My father's wrath has been satisfied. I've drunk the cup every last drop. It is finished. So this, this propitiation, this is the way that Christ destroys the devil. The only tool that he had. Now listen, there's an ultimate destruction that comes in the final consummation of the kingdom. There is a day coming when the devil and his, and his demons will be cast forever into the lake of fire. That's what hell was created for. But for now, even as they roam, they've been defeated by the propitiation of the wrath of God. Romans 8.33 asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Because of what Christ Jesus has done, there's no charge that can be brought any longer. We've been justified in Christ. The, the, the enemy has been defamed. We've taken away his only real weapon against us. He can kill you, but he can't bring a real accusation. Colossians 2.13 says, And you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities 
and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. They've been put to open shame. They are now mocked. They have no charge that they can bring. There's no accusation that's going to stick because Christ has handled it. Because Christ took upon himself flesh and offered himself as the high priest and as the offering. The last, was it last Sunday we watched Narnia? Last Sunday night, we watched the, the Chronicles of Narnia. We watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and I love that movie, but I, I, I couldn't help but feel myself. You know, really one of the best scenes in the whole movie is when Aslan is in the tent and the white witch comes and she's saying that boy deserves death. He's broken the law, all of these things. And, 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 I, and always when I watch that, I want to hit pause and look around to the people that are with me and say, I need to make sure you understand the devil was not owed payment. The devil had the right to demand nothing. It was God who was offended. It was God whose wrath needed to be propitiated. The ransom and the payment and the life that was given was owed to God, not to Satan, not to the rebel. And he is now, because the payment has been made to God, he finds himself defeated and destroyed and his only weapon taken away. He's removed the punishment. He's risen in glory. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15 as we talk about the hope of the resurrection and the promise of this new body that we will have. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So that we now stand here, we can look the devil dead in his eye and we can say, death for us is gain. Death for us is entrance into the presence of God. Death for us, yes, is the loss of everything we love, good stuff we love, family and health and anything else that you have accumulated in this lifetime. It is the loss of all of that, but it's gain for me because the one who was my trailblazer, the one who is like me as my brother, he's laid down his life and he's taking me to himself. I skip verse 16, but we go back to it now. He says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And, and I pointed your attention this morning to that word helps. Some translations have it as um, concerned. And, and I think that's almost moving the wrong direction. It's just, I care for you and I'm thinking about you and I'm worried about you. It's a, it's a, it seems to be a stronger word than that. It's, it's take hold. The same word is used in Hebrews 8, 9, where it says, on that day, I took Israel by the hand. That's a better picture, I think. On that day, I took Israel by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. This is not just a picture of, of helping. This is not just a picture of concern. This is a picture of taking you by the hand and leading you to glory. Isaiah 41, 8 to 10. This is, I, I love it when, do you have, you have cross references in your Bible? Very rarely do the cross-references in my Bible prove to be what I believe is the best cross-reference. Come smarter, apparently, than the ESV guys. Not really. This is one where cross-references nailed it. Isaiah 41, 8-9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the picture of the help that he brings. It's not a boost. It's not a kickstart. It's not a warm, a warm greeting and a well wish. It is the righteous right hand of God holding you up and carrying you and sustaining you. And he says he didn't do this for the angels. This isn't a story about God's redemption of the angels because angels didn't enjoy redemption. Not that they didn't fall, but because when they fall, he left them there. It says that 2 Peter 2, 4, that if God did not spare his angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloominess and darkness until the coming judgment. Angels long to look into what it is that we receive from the hand of God. You realize this. They're in awe of what God is doing. And these creatures who are 
lower than them, and yet God passes them up on the way to come to us to do this redemptive work and taking upon himself the fullness of flesh. So he, he didn't do this same work. It's, it's not the angels that he's helping like this. It's humanity, but not all humanity, is it? There's always a particular people for whom the offering is made. There's always a particular people who the offering represents, propitiating God's wrath towards them, taking away their guilt before God. And here he says that it's the offspring of Abraham. And boy, do I have good news for you, children of Abraham. As we've spent so much time working together through, as we considered that portion of Ephesians where it says that we were once hopeless and without God. Why? Because we were aliens and we were exiles and we didn't have the covenants. We didn't have the promises. And Christ didn't come to us in the flesh. And we knew nothing of the circumcision and all those incredible blessings that belonged to the people of Israel. All the signs and the shadows and the pictures that were meant to drive them like Simeon and Anna to the Christ. We didn't have any of that. And yet now, what has he done? But he's brought us near in Christ Jesus so that all who have flesh in him, we are true children of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham in whom all the promises are fulfilled, we belong to him. So that Galatians 3, 7 says that we must know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or again in verse 29, if you are in Christ, that you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. So the unbelievable grace and inexplicable goodness of God that it's not for angels that he does this, but for man and not just for any man, but for us. Nothing in us that would have caused us to make the cut. Therefore, back to 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become not just the offering, not just the substitute, not just the atoning sacrifice, but a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So that he's not just our savior and he's not just our trailblazer and he's not just the one who is sacrificed. He's the high priest in service to God, but he's not just any old high priest. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, in, in, the, in, the, um, in the Baptist church, you, you guys don't call me a priest. We're a kingdom of priests. You, you don't have, a, you don't have a, an earthly priest. You have a pastor or an, or an elder or an overseer or a shepherd. I'd even settle for bishop. But you don't have a priest. You have a heavenly priest. You have Christ Jesus, the great high priest. The high priest that has so completed his work, he gets to sit down while all the earthly priests had to stand up. He made that once and for all sacrifice. And we know that only man can represent man. An intercessor has to be like the one he's representing. He has to be fully man. But, but because he is so fully man that he's walked through suffering and he's walked through pain and he's walked through temptation and he's walked through weakness and he's walked through being rejected and despised amongst men and he's tasted death, because of this, he's not just an effective high priest, he's a merciful high priest. It says in verse 18 that because he himself has suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ, who knows the fullness of temptation in ways that you or I never would. Not only because of the force of his temptation, and you recognize that Satan came after him guns ablazing, and not only because of the duration of his temptation, and not only because of the weight of what stood behind if he failed. You realize, I've used this analogy before, but um, as you see Christ Jesus there in the wilderness, I've, I've used a, a football term. You know, you're, you're watching a football game, and it's, uh, you know, it's third and four with 32 seconds left and you're at the other team's 30-yard line down by six and the announcer will often say something like, this is the whole ball game right here. It's not the whole ball game. There was, I don't know how many minutes are in a ball game, 60 minutes in the ball game. But if the team fails right here, it's over. When you look at Christ Jesus in the wilderness, that's the whole ball game. There was much more than that. But if he fails, we lose. 
So not only was there a great deal at stake in his temptation, and not only was there a great weight in his temptation, he's the only one that has ever fully bore up under temptation. He's the only one that endured all the temptation, tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. He's the only one that bore up in that temptation, not internal temptation like ours. So much of my temptation comes from my internal sin and my jacked up heart. But all the external temptation that a man could receive, he bore up under it perfectly. So he knows the weight better than you and I ever will. Chuck, I got a confession to make. On the way down here to preach, I found some more donut holes in your classroom and I ate them all. I don't, I don't know the weight of temptation of donuts. I don't resist. I just eat. But the one who resists, you know this when you've tried to resist, when there's that, that besetting sin in your life and you've sought to, to put it to death, you've sought to make war on it. And, and you know how the weight just increases with time. You, you know the, the bearing up and that's what he's done. And so what would you expect then? What would you expect? This one who has stepped down from heaven, who took upon himself the fullness of flesh, and by the way, didn't cheat. He didn't have a divine humanity. He didn't have some supersonic humanity. He was like you. He was like me. And yet in obedience to the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he resisted every last temptation for our sake that he could redeem us just so he could turn around and watch me eat half a dozen donut holes right before getting up here and preaching. Wouldn't you think that kind of high priest would despise me? I'll save you, but I won't think much of you. I'll save you, but I'm gonna have to hold my nose to do it. I'll welcome you to heaven, but you have to know how very upset I am. But it's the opposite. It says, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Oh, okay, but again, that, to me, that sets a tension there. I, I can't look him in the eye. He, he didn't eat and I ate. He didn't sin and I sinned. So what's the log logical response to this? What does the inspired authors of Hebrews call us to do because of the one who endured and tasted and didn't sin? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. He endured, he pressed on, he never sinned and he doesn't despise you for it. He says, I am here because I have tasted it. I receive you as a merciful high priest. Come and get grace from me, mercy from me. Help at exactly the moment you need it. Many men, they translate this help in a time of need as well-timed help, just when you need it. When that weight is bearing down upon you, when you feel like the threats of Satan and the fear of death and the, the, all the... All the experiences of life and your own emotions are bearing down at you. It is right then at that well-timed moment that you cry out to the one that has tasted that and endured and say, I need your help more now than ever. That's the last moment you need to be bashful and be turning away. I can't bear to look you in the eyes. He says, I know what you've suffered. I bore up so that you could have glory. Now come to me. That's why he's able to help us. Hebrews 7, 23, we're almost done. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Saved to the uttermost doesn't mean there's some people that are kind of saved and there's other people that are really saved. Saved to the uttermost means he's going to carry you through to the end. He doesn't start the work and not complete it. He will carry you through all the way as you draw near in those times of temptation. As you crawl, cry out to the one who has likewise suffered temptation. The one who endured. He says, I will help you. I will endure you. I will constantly be there making intercession that you might be saved to the uttermost. So is any wonder we come from there to beginning of chapter three, and we're told, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Hits a little differently. 
Once you recognize who this Jesus is that you're considering. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful word you have given us. We thank you for the beauty of Christ Jesus coming in the flesh and all that he accomplished. We thank you, Father, that we can come to you in his name knowing that the one who is there interceding for us even now has tasted and experienced this life. And yet, despite his perfection and our failure, he doesn't despise us. He calls us brothers. In fact, he's not ashamed to call us brothers, even as he sanctifies us now. Father, I pray that you bless us as we go. Help us to hold this message in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.